Hi, it's Brett Cowell, and this is the Total Life Complete podcast coming to you from Addison, Texas. And today I'm here with Dustin Blocker, Chief Creative Officer of Hand Drawn Pressing, Records, Artist, Musician. Welcome, Dustin. Hey, thanks for having me, Brett. My pleasure. And hopefully today we'll talk about vinyl, uh, the independent music industry a little bit, and, and perhaps about the art of business if we get a chance. Sure. Sounds great. So I ask all my guests to start off with, how do you introduce yourself at a party when people ask who you are? Uh, yeah. So I guess when people ask uh, what I do for a living, I usually say I'm in the music industry uh, or, I, or I say I own a record company. And both those things kind of get like a mixed response, I guess is the best way. Uh, and so without diving in deep, uh, the last about year, year and a half, when I say oh, I make vinyl records, that's a much easier people usually spark up. They understand what that means. Uh, and they usually have a story of either they, you know, their mom and dad gave them their records and they used to collect them or that their niece and nephew is into it and they think it's cool. So let's start on, on vinyl. Um, we're sitting here. I, I believe that within a few minutes walk from where we're sitting, there is, uh, some sparkling brand new vinyl presses. Do you want yeah. to talk about that? Yeah, sure. So uh, we actually have the first, we procured the first new uh, vinyl, fully automatic vinyl record pressing uh, machines in the world in the last 35 uh, years or so. Uh, so really the way to think about record pressing, the actual process hasn't changed since the 60s. Uh, but what has changed is now there's computers. Um, and so uh, the presses are, are pretty much made in the way that they actually make the records is the same way as they've always been made. But um, the way that the tem temperatures are controlled and how much uh, loss you have, efficiency, all those kinds of great things are now controlled by a computer instead of somebody trying to figure out with their thumb, uh, you know, like the Titanic shoveling colon in is a kind of way that they don't run ships anymore. So hopefully uh, throughout time, record pressing could have gotten better and it finally has. So uh, yeah, we're really, really excited. A lot of, a lot of new records coming off, um, you know, every, every minute. And, um, it's really cool. Just work with, with new artists constantly, uh, people that we normally wouldn't have the, a reason to be in the same room with. We now are, are doing something for them and it's, it's a lot of fun. In preparation of coming here, when I said I was going to come and talk about vinyl records plans, I think most people were not aware of that, and they're very surprised. And a few were quite nostalgic, as you as you indicated earlier. There, um, why build a, in twenty seventeen build a record pressing plan in in Texas? Yeah, so it's a great question. So uh, my business partner Alex Cushion and I, um, about two and a half years ago, um, we were we were working at, at a corporation at the time, and I had always been a musician for the last uh, seventeen years or so, and then I started a record label and it was kind of it was doing fine but as far as bringing home uh you know money for the family that's something a lot different and so he said how do we turn this into a real business how do we turn hand-drawn records into a real business and i said well the what's happening in the market is vinyl records is exploding nobody's able to make them uh, all the presses are very very old and uh it's just a really really exciting thing that's happening and it fits with i'm a record collector and it just fits with kind of the dna of what we do as a label so if there's any way to ever get into something cool uh and perhaps make a make a business out of it it would be vinyl records um so in the end of 2014 we actually started off as brokers for vinyl uh meaning that we would go out to other plants and and uh, mastering houses print guys uh, and just make the process a lot easier for artists uh, to get their records um, the whole time knowing we wanted to actually own our own machines uh, and being in a much bigger way uh, which led us down the rabbit hole for searching for old machines couldn't find any in the world uh, finally I guess about 18 months ago uh, I found a company that was 
that there was literally just a splash page that said, you know, with like a phone number <laughs> and I uh, found on some weird blog or something. And um, I contacted them. We we flew up and saw the prototype in action and uh, knew that if it, we saw the prototype working, so that's the first thing I've ever seen that was new making a record. And we had been to many plants at the time. Um, so if they can make the prototype work, what's the production model going to look like? So we actually on faith, uh, signed up to purchase the first new record presses, uh, in the world. And, um, and they landed on our docks here and we've been, been pressing ever since and been the guinea pigs in a lot of ways for the, for the new machines. Um, but all along the while learning a lot and, uh, having a lot of fun, which is the key to anything in life, we think. It absolutely is. And thanks for saying that on the show. Um, in researching to, to meet you, I looked at some of the video of the presses and they look very familiar to me and, and, and kind of, I kind of geeked out a little bit on the, on the plants. So two things, two things that struck me. Number one, um, they, they were very modern, very new and very up-to-date and modular and, and computer controlled and everything. They're like that. It, it wasn't uh, the old kind of steam engine kind of thing that you've seen before that's falling apart all the time. The other thing I noticed in the video is is, is uh, you just stopped, stepped off stage and now you're in, a, ah. you're, you're in a kind of record pressing plant here like that. Although now you're in business, uh, you, uh, you still look like a front man of a band. <laughs> ah. Well, good. Uh, yeah, I hope... Uh you know, hopefully when you do something that you love, you don't just have to go suit and tie it. Right. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, that's a, it's a, it's an interesting uh, thing about trying to find your identity and sometimes you find it through business and sometimes it finds it through you. But, um, yeah, I, I've always been comfortable as a performer and that was kind of my part of my life for a big time, you know, a big chunk of my life. Um, and, and I got married and had a couple young, uh, a couple kids, which are now young, young children. But, um, really trying to figure out that path. Was there a way to still be artistic and do what I loved um, and do it for a living? And uh, I struggled with that for a long time. And uh, in, in a good way, I, I, I don't know if it's just, it's just really the blessings that were, uh, you know, bestow, bestowed upon me and my family. But we, we really, you know, my wife and I sat down and when she knew I was going to go full time with, with Hand Drawn Records, you know, it was a big leap of faith uh, for her probably more so than it was for me. Cause at least I could see the path that I wanted to be on and she had to just trust that. Um, so she's been a great partner all the way through. And now that, you know, we're manufacturers and it's a place you can go to every day and it's a real business. Um, you know, I think that hopefully just bolsters that, that faith in me. So, um, but yeah, I think, uh, part of the stage and, and really that connection with artists, um, is something that, you know, it drives me. I really like to, uh, a coaching's kind of a thing that I enjoy. Uh, whether it be sports or really, yeah, what to do on stage or, or anything. So, uh, you know, a lot of artists we have on our roster and a lot of artists I just, you know, at shows, uh, you know, when it's appropriate, I try to give them little tips to maybe try this or try that. And uh, I've had some great mentors, um, you know, in my in my career as a, as a, as a singer and a musician too. Um, one of them, actually Andrew Tinker, who is on our label, I would consider him, you know, really he's a mentor. He knows one of our artists and mm -hmm. technically, I guess, I would be over him because I'm the label guy, right? That's never been the case. Like he's produced records with me, he's played on stage with me a million times, um, and he's enjoying a lot of success as a songwriter. And now it's funny he's given me a lot of guidance, and now I give him. And I think that's the way it, it should work in the artistic community. Is you know people that have been there and done that should be able to pass some of that information along. And you know the more you learn, the hopefully the more you can help out others. So. That's that's the kind of the journey we've been we've been going on and I have been personally.
And I, I noticed that you you call yourself the chief creative officer or you maybe the chief coaching officer as well. <laughs> That's good. I'm going to use that. <laughs> That's a great. And did you, uh, was there any consternation here? And I know you've talked about it a little bit already, but um, in working out what you were going to call yourself that would represent what you do and who you are? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, yeah, originally, you know, um, I'd done some marketing in the past, but it was kind of like I was pushing in those roles when I was in a different, you know, different world. And um, it just seemed very disingenuous, disingenuous, the whole term marketing and all that. Um, so originally it was, um, you know, my, my roles were broken up amongst the creative side and the marketing side, which ties the creative side. And so part of my role originally had chief marketing in there or marketing officer, et cetera. And I just never, I just didn't like the taste in my mouth of it. Um, the creative side, what I love is I get to be creative and help people with like what packaging ideas or colors for the records, et cetera. But also on top of that, it's really working with our artists on the creative side, um, all the graphic design. So um, our websites, the banners and posters that are hand-drawn ones i make all that t-shirts hats all those things like i actually create all those things still to this day and uh i don't have as much time to do all the design work and any kind of performance work that i'd like to do um which is fine and uh and so it allows me even if i'm i'm not the one that gets to be day-to-day -day creative everybody i'm working with is on the creative side so mm -hmm. it's 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 really really cool just to the name of hand-drawn it where did that come from? Yeah, so it's interesting. I um, so I started the label, uh, I guess, about six and a half years ago. Uh, I had been in a band, uh, Exit Three Eighty, for at that point already, you know, a decade plus. And I had uh, my guitarist, who was the best man at my wedding, really great friends. But he and some of the other guys in the band would basically write all the music, and I would write the lyrics, or sometimes they would write the lyrics and music. And so it was always kind of uh, my whole—I don't know if you want to call it—professional career of being in music was other people kind of writing stuff and I would fit in where I got in, right? Um, and so to think uh, uh, in, I guess, around that, that six and a half years ago, seven year period, it was when uh, my wife was pregnant with our, with our first son. And I was like, I'm going to learn how to play piano. And as I was learning, I was like, well, I might as well record it because, you know, and that will get you better. Um, so I recorded a solo project called WA Fight, which is a pseudonym for myself. Um, and I wrote and recorded all the parts and sang all the parts. And I didn't really know what I was doing, but I really liked it. So I was like, I don't think anybody will ever buy this, but I'm going to make this. And so I drew all the artwork, um, including the little guy who's on our logo. And he was actually reaching up. So the name of the album was called Poisoning the Medicine Tree. And he's reaching up into the tree. And so I took him and I'd use, I used stencils for the whole thing. And I said, hand-drawn records, right? And I got uh, with the guy who I started the label with, uh, Chris Whitehead out of Oklahoma, who was making t-shirts for us at the time owned a different company i said hey if you will split the price of cd you throw in 250 bucks i'll throw in 250 bucks we'll have a label and let's see where it goes and that was literally what hand-drawn records was um and then from that point on we would just i would do trade of services with other people i'd draw their artwork or i'd help them get into a studio or whatever or help promote them uh and that was the communal side of the label and it just kept growing and growing until we're kind of at where we're at today. It's a very easy way of putting it. We certainly have talked a lot about on the show about, um, you know, community and, and and more organic ways to 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 
do business and, and uh, rather than a, a corporate structure where people are trying to be someone that they're not and, and doing something they don't really want to do because they want the money. Um, you know, so I think hand-drawn, I, I like the name, so I'm just going to say that. And I, I, like, I think it's cool, the, the designs on the, the website that's uh, really nice and fits in with what you're doing here. When I was looking at the you talking about the, um, the the pressing plant in other interviews, it was really you talked a lot about empowering artists. Uh, you know, we started off this conversation talking about nostalgia for, for for records, and we'll get back into that nostalgia maybe in a second. But um, but you talked a lot about empowerment. You know, this this plant being empowering. So maybe just speak a bit more about that. Yeah. Um, so really, the empowering side, the idea in I, I alluded to earlier was to make it a real business, of course. Um, but beyond that, uh, it was to really, really ride, you know, a high tide rises all boats. So if we're doing something that's different, unique, um, and doing it in a space that, you know, we all want to be in and, and I, I, you're probably not a musician on the planet that you would show them a record and they would spit on it or throw it on the ground. Right. Um, I think it's universally something that's, that they, that all musicians love and a lot of thankfully other, other aficionados love them as well. But um, and so really the empowerment comes from, you know, it, it rising us to a level where we can be in the, I was saying earlier, the conversations with people, we typically wouldn't have a, a reason to be in the room with them, you know, larger management companies, larger booking agencies, larger labels. Um, and it really opens the door to build an ongoing relationship with people in other parts of the industry, which then vibes back to allowing it to help our artists. So really that empowerment is... Some of it's singular focused, like uh, our artist is putting on a show and we'll help you promote the show. But really the big picture should be, you know, it's it's all about people and it's all about relationships. So, you know, if we're doing what is right in our day-to-day operations as a pressing plant, shouldn't that uh, vibe off to, to make sure that we're doing things, you know, are affording opportunities to our artists and, and not just the artists that are, you know, on our label, but really the ones that we like to work with, which there's many that aren't on our label that we would consider them the same, you know, kind of the same vibe. So uh, that that we do things with all the time, you know, whether it be compilations or or live events or South by Southwest or any of these kind of things. Um, Cancer Jam, which is an event that we do every year. Uh, you know, it's just it's just there's there's a lot of artists that fit under that umbrella. And um, we want to make sure that we're offering plenty of things that they can come back to us as a resource. And we want to be able to reach out to them to help us with things that we we might not be experts in. And in the age of streaming, um, what about financial viability or the ability to eat and survive? Um, how, how does vinyl fit into that? Yeah. So really, um, if you looked at just sheer numbers, um, vinyl is going to be a little over a billion dollars uh, this year in total sales. Uh, which, which, if you're looking at it, is that a lot? Well, two years ago it was 500 million. A couple years before that, it wasn't even a blip on the radar. So, the last 10 years has been growing. The last five years, it started becoming interesting. Two years from now, they think it's going to be about three billion, and they, they they think it'll probably taper and just stay about where it's at in about 2020. So, really, what's going to happen is CDs, as the physical mediums continue to drop, they're still manufacturing a lot of CDs out in the world, but they're dropping 20% year over year. Uh, uh, vinyl records are jumping up 35, sometimes 50% a year. And then you have streaming growing exponentially, but streaming will actually cap out too. So what everybody thinks is going to happen uh, is streaming and vinyl are going to be your two options for for ingesting music, um, which is great. So we think we've aligned ourselves with the really great opportunity, of course. And um, But the other thing is the tangibility of streaming. Um, 
we we think it used to be in the past um if you looked at all the stats from the 70s when it was it was only vinyl to when it was tape and vinyl to when it was cd and tape and vinyl to when it was only cd to then when when uh, digital came along blew it all apart then it was a lot of downloads uh and now it's all being fractured again well what you used to see was portability versus quality so the vinyl record was never portable and so it got broken up by all all the uh you know the accessible piece that you could take it on the road so now that you have more than one option people are actively choosing to listen to vinyl along with they're actively choosing to stream they're not actively choosing to download and they're not actively choosing to do cd uh to, to purchase cds and listen to cds anymore so um you know it's it is interesting it's funny when you look at streaming as far as a revenue stream artists aren't making money on streaming that's the nuts and bolts of it uh you know some of the big companies that do that that offer streaming as a service are making money uh now artists are making money on the road and they're going to make money on merch and their merch can be their t-shirts and their koozies and their hats and thankfully now it can be a vinyl record uh again which out of all those things has some of the highest margins so um, vinyl records are much more expensive to purchase, much more expensive to manufacture than CDs. Um, but there's a return on investment that hasn't been there at the merch table for a while. I know from my own experience, the last even really five, eight years, we were just giving away CDs. We'd make them all. You'd sell the first you know, few hundred at a show. When I first started my career, we'd sell out all of them, thousands of them. And then all of a sudden, we couldn't even sell them. And so you're just like, uh, here you go. Just come back, please. Here's the CD. Here's my business card. And uh, and it really, I was emboldened by the fact to, to kind of uh, bring that back around to, to today. Um, when I was, we were at South by Southwest when we did a few showcases and we brought records to some of these big shows. And when I went out on the streets at night on 6th Street, um, I saw hundreds of CDs on the ground. People were just handing them out and on the ground, stepping on them. I didn't see one vinyl record on the ground. So that kind of told me like nuts and bolts, there's intrinsic value to this thing. Not only is it cool, but it's valuable. And if somebody happened to be, which I don't think they would, handing them out like they do CD on the road, I still don't think that you'd find them on the ground. So there's my little anecdotal note. There's probably a sense of place if you're buying this at a gig. Um, so putting aside the fact that these kind of sweaty people <laughs> that have had a few drinks carrying these huge unwieldy things around and hopefully not dropping them on the floor. But So that's that's an interesting mental image. But, you know, it's a sense <laughs> of place, right? You know, you go there, you remember the show, you buy some merch, not only the T-shirt, but you buy the music to take back with you that may not be available in that form anywhere else. So it's not just a kind of letting the music wash over you, just flicking through your phone, discovering or your computer and finding something new. It's actually having to go there on a day and to get a limited edition, presumably, or something like that. Yeah, and and, and really um, what we find, and, and I think most artists can attest to this, is when you put a record down, you're actively engaging with that. So, you know, you're more liable, you know, more likely to look at the lyrics or if there are lyric sheets, but look at the artwork, which is much bigger and more impressive. The actual weight of the record usually has holds a value. But then what I do is I'll put it down a turntable and I typical work, you know, a few feet away from it. And instead of rather getting up to flip it, I might just hit play again or rather than take another one off the shelf, I might just hit play again. So I might listen to the same record for a week on just side A. And by the way, that makes me want to go to that show more because now I know all five songs. I didn't just stream past it. I didn't flick past it. It didn't go past me on the radio or on my phone in the car. I was engaged with it. And I was like, you know what? I didn't like track three. 
at first and now it's my favorite track and that only happens with deep listening and this format gives you that it allows you to take the time in this insanely busy world to sit down and absorb I get that in terms of deep listening. I like the way you, you put that because I, if I think about a time when I would actually sit down just to listen to music, I've probably not done that in a very long time. But having kids aside, um, I have a music on as a soundtrack to working or traveling or whatever and, and rarely sit down to actually put music on, whereas I would do that um, with vinyl records before and um, CDs to, to some extent as well. So I think the way that you're interacting with the music is different. Um, so how's this going to this album format or this side format going to influence and will it influence the way artists produce music or think about music, package music, create music? Yeah, so um uh, you know, art without boundaries is sometimes I don't know if dangerous is the right word, but if you don't have any boundaries, it's a little hard to keep limitations to a minimum. So uh, when they, what happened was when the when it used to be analog driven music, meaning an artist would come to the studio, they had tape you only had so much tape. If you ran out of tape, it was going to be more expensive to get more tape. The editing process was much more complicated. So when they went to record, the band had to be much tighter. So they had to be a band that knew what they were doing prior to walking in. Now, then when they did that, they knew only X amount of music, a certain amount of time was going to even fit on the record, which was the only format. And so they had to pick the songs they chose wisely that they recorded. Then they had to pick the songs wisely that they were going to actually mix and master to be on the final record. Um, so uh, the vinyl format, essentially 17 to 22 minutes is about what you want on every side for optimal volume and and uh, the like just volume levels basically and, and frequency ranges. Um, and so if you go past that, you're kind of in a bad zone. So, uh, so that is something that you got to coach up today's generation because what happened, tape went away and digital came in and as digital then moved over to the laptop and recording got much easier, um, bands didn't have to be as tight and then became a choice. Oh, this band sounds like crap on purpose. We say, you know, but is that really true? Nobody really knows. It's, you know, eyes of the beholder kind of stuff. But the reality is having, I don't, having a tight band, at least to me personally, having a band that's really tight live, I would love to hear that on a record. Um, so the, the recording medium has changed a lot as well, where analog tape has now become a thing that most studios are offering again because artists want to be challenged, just like they're challenged by how much time they can fit and they have to be particular what they put on the record itself. They're now wanting to be even challenged back in the recording space. So there's a lot of everything that's old is new again uh, happening. And usually art is what drives that. You know, it happens a lot in fashion uh, and in film and all that too. But um, yeah, it's, it is it is a lot of fun to see uh, bands that have to get tight before they go into the studio and then really choose their songs wisely to be able to fit it on a, on a record. And it makes them have to edit. And editing is one of the most important things because at the end of all this, if you want to be a successful musician or successful uh, recording artist, people want to have you're going to have to have them want to listen to it. And so you expounding and and having 75 minutes of music for no reason might not be the best thing for your career. <laughs> if you want them to listen to it, make it manageable, make it so it's chunks that they can absorb. That's my Yeah, the there's my coaching. Well. Yeah. No, that's, coaching that's great on the coaching. And I think let's talk a little bit about the record label and, and how did you get your roster of artists was that a, a something you set out based on a, a genre or location or Yeah, so um it was very organic. Uh a lot of uh, the artists that we work with today actually came, uh, talking about organic wave from compilations. So um, 
we always found I uh, talking about the working relationship. I mentioned that earlier about other labels, but even internally, that's something that I always took um, as very important. In the, if I want to have an artist that I on our label, I want to be able to sit in a room with them, talk. I want to be able to hang out with them, drink a beer, whatever. More than just that, they're really great and they can sell some music. So it's odd that those are the kind of people that were drawn to us. And so we would do compilations and out of the 12 artists on there, one of them would stand out maybe, maybe musically or maybe five of them would stand out musically, but one of them would stand out as contacting me. Hey, how can I help? Hey, I want to promote or hey, let's do that. And I would say, this guy has a work ethic. Let's talk more. And that work ethic is the thing that really, that's what bonds me to an artist. Um, that work ethic is the one thing that got me ahead when I was doing music full time. Um, and I really see that as the most valuable piece. And oddly enough, when somebody has really, a really great work ethic, guess what? Their music's usually pretty awesome too, because they're always striving to make it better. And the people that they put around them, the bass player and the drummer, whatever, they're driving them to make it better. And, uh, and that being better and, and recording without financial implications aside, the music that our people, all the people on our label put out is unbelievable. And I'm just like, this, these are all hidden gems. Like, how's everybody not listen to this stuff? Because um, the quality is great. The song, the songwriting and the craftsmanship is, is unbelievable. Um, so that's really the people we've, we've uh, you know, been attracted to and have been attracted to us uh, on personal levels and then on the artistic side. So Hand Drawn Records has really, really been made up, uh, you know, uh, even to this day, uh, you know, community has been a big driver of it uh, on and off the stage. Uh, we communicate a ton on and off the stage, uh, try to be as much in personal lives as possible, you know, uh, as much as anybody wants, I guess. And, uh, and it's, and it's amazing. It's, it's just, you know, people are drawn to the right things, it seems. And, um, and somehow it's, it's, it's afforded us new and newer opportunities all the time. Are you putting together some compilation, some label profiles on vinyl? And do you think that actually having that vinyl is going to allow people to discover those artists they might not have heard otherwise? Yeah. So um, something we started uh, about two years ago is called Analog Sessions. So we had, mul we had I think, six compilations leading up to it that were called Hand Drawn Records, a, a compilation, volume one, volume two, volume three. And they're great. Um, most of them were just digital only, and we maybe did a show. Um, and it was really cool. It allowed us, again, to kind of work with artists during that time period of promotion. Um, and then we started Analog Sessions, and we were about to release Volume 3 in August. We released Volume 2 in, I think, February or March um, of this year, and we'll probably continue that. And what Analog Sessions means, uh, it was recorded to analog tape, um, and it uh, it's only on vinyl format, so it's not even on a digital format. And so the only way to get it is to get it like that. And we keep it. They're all for free. And that's one thing we've done with every compilation. Uh, we take up all the costs, right? We, we spend all the money and then we give them out. And it's all pure promotion for those artists. And we hopefully just keep making them more and more interesting, more and more interesting packaging, colored vinyl, black tied with black vinyl, different gram weights, uh, kind of cool things. Um, and yeah, our, our volume two actually had um, Tim DeLauder for Polyphonic Spree. Uh, had a really cool solo track on there. We had Deep Blue Something, which did Breakfast at Tiffany's. We had Luke Wade, Charlie Crockett, uh, our artist Andrew Tinker and Shin, Cutthroat Finches. Um, and then we, uh, I'm trying to think, there's even a couple more. Oh, yeah, we had War Party, a couple of tracks from the Texas Gentleman, which are doing some incredible things uh, right now. So, you know, it's amazing when you do things for the right reason we were talking about. 
uh, they kind of come back in the forms of really cool opportunities like the like the analog sessions records. But yeah, we're gonna keep putting more and more out and just finding new ways to do it. And and talking about the one in August. So the analog sessions volume three, we actually um, went to Nashville to Welcome to 1979 with our artists at Cutthroat Finches. And they went to Welcome to 1979 as an analog studio and they do our plating. Uh, so they cut them, they record to tape, then they cut the master and they plate the master all there. It's an incredible place. Um, so we had Cutthroat Finches and Alex, uh, my business partner, and I actually flew out there as well um, and went to the studio. It was just a one day thing. They had a, what they call a vinyl camp where they're teaching engineers and producers how to record to tape. And then uh, Cutthroat Finches recorded live and it wasn't just like they recorded live to tape so it was nerve wracking. They recorded live to the lacquer being cut in real time. So if they screwed up, you you burned that whole lacquer. So you had guys in another room cutting the lacquer in real time, looking at them on a video monitor while they're playing. There was a couple times I could tell the band was super nervous and they pulled off, it was great. Um, so we did one song aside. So it's a big 12 inch record with one song each side. And it's called Cut. It's the Cutthroat Finches version live at Welcome to 1979. And the the band was they pulled it off great, but they're so nervous. Sean Russell, who is one of our artists, and he's a singer for Cutthroat Finches, uh, and he's a great public speaker and everything too. We had him interviewed afterwards. We had to film some people filming there, and he was so nervous even after the recording process was was over. He was just trying to to say, uh, you know, we're at Welcome 1979 Studios live at Nashville, Tennessee. And he couldn't, he kept saying Nashville, Texas, you know. <laughs> and, and, and it was like five times I go, Sean, calm down. But it's a, it is when you're, when you're doing something you love and it's very difficult to pull it off correctly, you know, the nerves, the nerves get in there. But they did a great job. So look out for that one. I'll, I, we'll have it out in, uh, I think, the end of August. How can people get that? Just maybe talk a little bit about distribution. Can folks go to their local record shops? And is that in Dallas or Texas or nationally, internationally? Yeah. So uh, we do have um, we have some distribution uh, for for I think it's 280 independent record stores throughout North America. Um, the things like the compilations, since we don't sell them, it's a little more difficult to put them on the shelf. So we literally make a deal with the store owners just, hey, can we put these out and give them away? Um, so we do that with a lot of the local stores. Uh, we'll, we'll talk to Good Records about it. Um, probably Spinster down in Oak Cliff. Those guys do a lot with us. Uh, Chief Records down in Fort Worth. Uh, Doc Records down in Fort Worth. Um, and those are usually the ones that we talk with the most in our artist perform at a lot. Just talking a little bit about your journey and I'm going to put two things together because I know we're running out of time, you know, in terms of your your bands that, that you've been involved with and then how your sound and your inspiration has changed as you know things have happened in your life you, you've become a dad and you know sure um so exit 380 was a band i started i was 20 um and we were playing in bars and i remember when i turned 21 the bar owner was mad because we partied at the <laughs> at the bar that we used to play at all the time and he thought i was already over 21 but uh so exit actually started as a party band back in 99 uh i started as a kind of acoustic cover act thing and then we got more serious got more players and became kind of a, a rock band and then we became kind of a heavy rock band and then uh after i started having kids etc uh, maybe getting a little bit older we kind of matured into more of like a roots rock americana uh, alt folk kind of stuff. So we had lap steels and harmonicas and tambourines and, and everything wasn't over the top. And then the last uh, record we recorded was in 2014. Uh, it was called Photo Maps. 
And that was actually my first segue into doing vinyl was for my own uh, purposes. And I told, I, I got with the band and I knew about the time constraint things. And Andrew Tinker actually produced the record uh, down his, his studio uh, in Denton, Texas. And I said, hey guys, let's, let's really do something with this format. And we used to do rock and roll and now we do alt folk. Let's do half rock and roll on side A and we'll do the other half rock, you know, folk stuff uh, on side B. And so that's what we did. Uh, and we thought it was it was actually the most probably the most exciting and fulfilling record we did. I mean, at least that's one I think is my favorite. Bass player might say something different, but um, so that was Exeter, and that was the last record we did in the summer of 2014. Um, and then WA Fight, uh, I did two solo records, Poison the Medicine Tree, and then the last one, which was 2011, and then Builds with Age. I think I think I finished in 2015. Um, so the yeah, the last time I recorded music for you know, the public was then. I did, uh, X-Ray did perform on a couple of live compilations. We're on Analog Sessions Volume 1, which I think was the end of, I don't remember whatever year that was, it was 2016. But, um, so yeah, those are my two primary deals, my solo project and then the, the, the rock and roll band. People make music for various reasons and, and now you've got so much, so many other projects going on in, in your life at the moment with the Pressing Planet, et cetera. Do you, do you find that you can... Uh, wh- why do you make music and, and do you still need an outlet or is, is what you're doing as a day job really enough of an outlet or you still need to go home and make some music there or whatever? Yeah, it's interesting. So, um, yeah, I, I really, uh, you know, kind of the need to, to write new music and perform um, hasn't really been there, which has been kind of nice. Um, we actually, my wife and I moved with our family, moved to Granbury, Texas, about 90 miles uh, west of Dallas. So I drive in every day. Um, and during that time, um, the, the last two and a half years, we actually, we weren't really into the church before we went. And when we moved out there, we kind of started getting into, uh, the, the church, which is a local church called Stonewater, uh, down there in Granbury. And they instantly, you know, somebody introduced me as a singer to the, to the praise and worship team. And I told them, I was like, well, I don't really want to sing, you know, I'm not into it. I'm, I'm good. Um, but they kind of, you know, I would go on Sunday mornings and see the band. The band's incredible and the lights and sound, it's, it's a, like a big production. And, uh, so finally I was like, I went to him, I go, okay, okay I want to sing. So a lot of Sundays I'll be on stage, you know, singing worship music. And, uh, and it's, it's amazing. I've never listened to worship music. I had never sang in the car prior to then or anything like that. And, uh, so my one outlet is that, and I think, you know, it feels good. I do it for the right reasons. And, uh, and it's not like, look at me or, you know, it's actually probably the first time I've ever talked about it. So, um, but I love it. Absolutely love it. It's great that you've got that outlet there. And I, I know we're probably into our final minute here. And usually what I, uh, ask the guests is people listen to this podcast around the world, I think in about 18 or 19 countries. And, um, I always ask the guests to explain what the heart and soul of Dallas is in, and, uh, you know, how do you explain this place? What's it all about? Yeah. So if you look at Dallas on the surface, you know, it's very spread out and there's not a lot of things that tie it together like you would in some other cities. Um, but I would say at its, at its very core, you know, Dallas used to be a big rock and roll hub and all the artists would come through here. There was big uh, distribution. A lot of labels were here. Um, so really there, it's been kind of glazed over and, and kind of concreted over as kind of this, you know, it's the Dallas Cowboys and that's only any, anybody knows about it. Um, but there's a lot of, a lot of heart and soul here, here in Fort Worth as well. And in Denton, they actually call it the golden triangle. Cause if you look at a map, it's kind of like a triangle. Um, they're all separated by about 30 miles a piece, but Dallas, Fort Worth and Denton have totally different music scenes. They're all very tight 
and they're all completely different. And um, I would say Dallas and Fort Worth specifically have very the, the growth of the scenes and the community within those scenes are incredible. Um, so yeah, that's what I would challenge people when they come to Dallas. Don't just go to you know the uptown bars or maybe go see a sporting event, which there's plenty of that, um, or some of the art galleries in town. But really try to catch some live music because they're in Deep Elms specifically. Um, there's lots of uh, great venues, and now uh, you know there's even ones that are opening up in Oak Cliff. You have Kessler Theater. Um, so you have, um, you know, some mid-range, larger, and really small intimate venues throughout Dallas and Fort Worth that are just incredible. So that's always a challenge. Support local, and uh, you'll be amazed what you get back. Any just final closing words for uh, our listeners? Um, any life lessons that you've learned that you want to pass on to others? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I might have said it a little bit earlier, but working hard and going towards something that you want to, I mean, that can sound cl- cliché. Uh, but I did a lot of things I didn't want to do for most of my life and, um, or I wouldn't say most of my life or some of my life. And it really let me see that the grass isn't always greener chasing the money and chasing, you know, opportunities that aren't really very meaningful. Um, so, uh, challenges is something that I really love. So, uh, I like to challenge myself every day and work hard to get those goals. So, um, you know, I just started as some rock singer in a rock band and, then I was some kind of label guy and now I manufacture with the only new machines in the world and it's and it's amazing what can happen if you just stay at one thing and try to get as good as you can every day at it. Dustin Blocker, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much.